This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Theatre Nerds, it's me, Mike, and my good mate Mel sitting right here next to me. We are backstage, uh, kindly brought to you by Free FM and Creative White Cottle. And our musical of the week this week is Kismet, and I hate it. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. that. That opening track was called uh, Zibadaya, and it is from the 1991 studio recording, actually. Oh, so not a Broadway it's cast not a recording. Broadway cast recording. This is a better one done in 1991. A better one, you reckon? The feature voice in that particular track was Mandy Patinkin, which is why I particularly like that recording. Okay. And, and the reason I chose that soundtrack to talk about Kismet today was that um, it is peppered by some really interesting names we'll get to that a bit later on but okay. um yeah it's it, as shows go this is one that i have avoided for a long time but i always threatened that i would bring it up as a musical of the week one week and <laughs> you're lucky mel that's this week wow i feel so lucky mike <laughs> um have you been in it i have been in it yeah, which is right. one of the reasons why i feel the way i do sure 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 i may be overselling my hatred for it actually i don't know <laughs> you're you, hating you, you it. You can tell me how you judge it later. Yeah, yeah, okay. If you're tuning in for the first time, we are two of the theatre nerds residing here in Hamilton, New Zealand, and we talk a whole lot about theatre. If you want to catch up on anything that you've missed, and there's a whole lot if this is your first time, type Backstage with Mel and Mike into the search bar of any of your favourite podcast streaming apps. Now, last week, our musical of the week was The Lion King, and Mel, I'm so glad you reminded me of that with talking about past episodes, because at the same time, I'm reminded that you've also now seen the touring production, because you were mm. about to go and see it last week. Yeah. It was on in Auckland. It's, in fact, it's on till the end of this week, so what? What's the skinny on that? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Are you sitting on the fence? 
what? Um, well, as you know, I was feeling fairly ambivalent about it. Um, I, I wasn't particularly excited, and I really felt that way until the house lights went down. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that, that opening line where Rafiki comes out on stage, it's just really moving, the whole yeah. show, the tribalness of the show, and there's this, I guess, this spirituality. I don't even know what to call it, but it's moving. It is a moving piece of theatre. And it's something that you know so well you could recite from, you know, with, I could recite most of the lines of The Lion King easily. So it wasn't a, a show you had to pay particular attention to to keep up with. But the puppetry is just really beautiful. Like the puppetry, but it's not just puppetry. It's like puppetry fused with costume and costuming. It's some really spectacular, like, work. It's a visual uh, yeah. treat for the eyes. Oh, yeah. Uh, but professionally, I guess, right up there in terms of standards and... Uh, yeah, quality of production and so on. Yeah, well, um, I think one thing that I was a bit like not in love with is the fact that it's in such a big venue. Right. You know, it's in the Spark Arena. You know, where they have concerts. So you're sitting in the room with five thousand other people. And I was fortunate that Kate felt the need to buy expensive tickets and sit down the front. But <laughs> I would have hated to be one of the people w- right up the back, right up the back in the gods. Yeah, because yeah. it's not just the gods; it is the gods. Yeah, way it's way up the back of the stadium in the arena, and so. I was fortunate that I was able to forget that those 5,000, most of those 5,000 people were there, but I wouldn't, I don't think I wouldn't have, would have enjoyed it as much had I been further back. That's a whole topic of conversation, isn't it? We I, should have that. I, oh, that's funny. You should say that, Mike. <laughs> um, well, let's, yeah, let's talk that's about That's what inspired your decision to uh, bring that up today, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. a bit. And I really like intimate theatre, but I've had some really profound experiences in big theatres. Let's talk about it. I know. I know exactly where we're probably going to go with that and it will sound like we're putting a dollar each way, I think, by the time we get to it. But it's worth worth having a conversation, I think, about the pros and cons of what you place in what venue, Mm. what venues are suitable for what types of productions and that sort of thing. Yeah, totally. Anyway, Lion King, you'd recommend it? Yeah, yeah. Go and see it. balance? Go and see it. It's really fun and they've made the creative decision for Simba, who's played the role internationally, but he he just has his Kiwi accent here. Oh, cool. And I think that was a creative choice. Yeah. And it's kind of cool. I didn't like it at first. I was like, oh... Why? But you grow, you sort of grow into it, and the little Kiwi kid that they've cast has his little Kiwi accent as well, and it's just kind of cute. It looks like a cute, creative decision that they've made, and I'm into it. All right. Go see it. Well, we'll talk about venues and all that sort of stuff uh, a bit later, as we've already signaled, but first, can we just talk about how much theatre is actually going on in our neck of the woods? At the moment, it just seems like we're going crazy, doesn't is there it? what? Usually, um, dear old Hamilton gets a bit quiet around about the second half of the year. I don't know if it's a post-COVID thing or mm. post-lockdown thing, but this year the theatre programme in Hamilton is just way full and there's so much good stuff going on. Right. And and diverse. And we and something I'm hearing a little bit more of um, in artistic communities is that Hamilton is starting to make its mark on the rest of the country. Yeah, we've earned a lot of credit, I think, and a lot of respect over the last few years uh, in our neck of the woods. Mm. The stuff that we've been putting on here, the things that we've been encouraging, the uh, venues like the Meteor, which have have allowed um, so much new content to come along, I think that's being noticed in other areas. And there are certain parts of the country looking at what we're doing in the Waikato and thinking, hey, those guys are really good. They're onto it. And And I'm pretty proud of that. And what they do and what we do is good. 
You yeah. know, the quality of the productions produced here are high quality. And yeah. most of the people here don't get paid. So, like, what does that say about the quality of our work? Yeah. That we do it for the love of it. We've got some damn, damn fine people doing what they love. Yeah, we do. Which is really cool. You talk about quality of productions. Hamilton Operatic Society has always had a huge reputation for quality productions. Seems like they're back on song. Yeah. With, with Chicago. Uh, Chicago. I um, almost didn't go to see it, but I was able to get tickets and I went. And it's no wonder it was a sellout season. It was just an incredibly slick production as you would expect yeah um and the choreography the presentation everything about it was spot on and it seems like um you know hamilton operatic society is back if it ever went anywhere <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, know that, I know they've had troubles over the last year or two trying to sort of get them their heads above water again with the closure of well, a sellout theater. season will certainly be making them feel good absolutely yeah and congratulations to all of them that were involved in that that was a really first class production yeah big time and sort of on that note like i've been thinking heaps like you've just mentioned about how much theater is happening here um in the Waikato and in Hamilton you know between the Boylight productions that are about to head into rehearsal or, yep. or in rehearsal already Chicago that's just closed Mamma Mia's in rehearsal over at Rivoli Assassins is about to hit the stage we just did Heathers with original works from Sian Parker and Benny Marma and a- Anthony Iono not we, to mention the repertory societies around the area too exactly yep. I don't want to brag but we're kind of killing it as a community yeah I think we are. One of the reasons I moved back up to the Waikato actually was mm. uh, because there was so much going on here. And what I was looking forward to as I moved into the area again was to reconnect with people or to meet new people that I knew mm. were doing interesting stuff. And that was five, six years ago now. And it did the stuff that's happening here just gets cooler and cooler and better and better. Yeah, so watch out the rest of the world. Hamilton is coming for you. But before it does, let's get our calendars out, check them off, and uh, make sure that you take note of what is coming up around the place soonish and be warned. This is a fairly comprehensive list. Isn't it just? Mm. The Meteor has coming up. All I See, that's devised and written by Sian Parker. That's on this week, July 15th and 16th. Beards, 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 which is written by Trick of the Light and directed by John O'Freebian. That's coming up in the July school holidays, the 19th to the 23rd. And Assassins, presented by Bold Theatre, is in rehearsal, and that hits the stage in August. Clarence Street Theatre, Fame Junior is next up there, presented by Bravo Theatre Company, goes to stage in September. Over at Rivoli Theatre, Hamilton Musical Theatre are in rehearsal, as we've mentioned, for Mamma Mia. That goes to stage in October. And we're also in rehearsal for the annual Rivoli Theatre Christmas show, Back to the 80s, that opens in November. Navarra Lounge. Navarra Lounge open mic night tonight and every Wednesday come to that. Also, American Thursday presents The Swamp Dogs tomorrow, July the 15th and Morello Blue EP launches happening Friday. Over at the Woolshed Theatre in Tawamutu, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is on right now until July 18th. Last I heard, tickets were selling pretty well. Couldn't get a ticket. Uh-huh. Well, there you go then. <laughs> Sold out. Again, typical of what's happening around the region at the moment. Taroha Little Theatre has uh, rehearsals underway at the moment for Death and Taxes, April Phillips play that's going to stage in September. At the Gaslight Theatre in Cambridge, there is a staged reading coming up of The Winslow Boy by Terence Rattigan and directed by Tracy Barlow. That's July 24th. Meanwhile, Pataruru Theatre Players have uh, Exit Laughing coming up there in rehearsal for that at the moment. That's a Paul Elliott play. It's on stage next month. And in Rotorua Musical Theatre, Spamalot is coming up, directed by Alastair Hay. That hits the stage in August as well. Over the Kaimai's Tauranga Musical Theatre, Les Mis is uh, due to hit the stage September. Last weekend, I happened to be in Tauranga at an event where they did a 10-minute preview from the show. Awesome. My gosh. 
Yeah. They are swarming with talent. It's going awesome. to be an amazing show. Can't wait. Uh, this far out from their um, launch date for the season, they are sounding terrific. 16th Avenue Theatre, Neighbourhood Watch by Alan Akeborn, directed by Dennis Smith. Hoping to catch that this weekend myself. That's on now till the 24th. And Detour Theatre have uh, rehearsals underway for Sherlock Holmes, The Adventure of the Speckled Band, heading the stage September. Over in Onefero, the Society of Performing Arts are in rehearsal for The Jailhouse Frocks. That's a Devon Williamson play. They go to stage in September. Auckland Theatre Company presents the Here and Now Festival, formerly known as Young and Hungry. On this month at the basement, they have uh, Yung Yang by Sherry Zhang and Nanxi Zhang. And Fleshies 2.0 presented in collaboration with The Oddballs. In the way of upcoming opportunities and auditions, uh, we have auditions for Gaslight Theatre's upcoming season of Aladdin, the pantomime. That's directed by Tracy Barlow. The auditions are July 24th. Email tjb17 at students.waikato.ac.nz for more information and to book an audition. Or you could pop along to the Gaslight website as well. I think there's probably a, a link there to Tracy's email. Do that. Do that too. Convoluted. <laughs> Auditions for Morrinsville Theatre's November season of MTI's concert production altogether now have been announced for August the 1st. Email morrinsvilletheatrenz at hotmail.com for an audition slot there. Auditions for Tauranga Musical Theatre's November season of also altogether now. That will Those auditions will be announced very shortly. Riverley Theatre auditions coming up in September for Hamilton Musical Theatre's summer Broadway junior season of Beauty and the Beast junior. Watch this space for that. And Riverley Theatre are hosting an open mic night on August the 7th. Email marketing at riverleytheatre.nz to arrange your performance spot. And auditions for Riverley Theatre's November season of All Together Now to be performed in the John Gallagher Concert Chamber will be announced shortly too. Hutaruru Theatre players are auditioning for their Christmas production, Moonshine. Check out their Facebook page for more information there. As always, we invite you to get in touch if you would like to add something to that list. Our email address is backstagepodcastnz at gmail.com or send us a Facebook message or Instagram or something. Isn't that funny that All Together Now is being performed five million times? Yeah, that's great, isn't it? Well, look, and we mentioned a few weeks ago that they've released the rights for it to be performed on a... On three specific days to right. any society in the world. Right, so they're all happening at once. Basically. So they, they all have to happen at once, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's weird and funny.
out of the common place into the rain somewhere in space I hang suspended until I know there's a chance that you care won't you answer the and prayer of a stranger in paradise don't send me in dark despair from all that I hunger for but open your angel's arms to the stranger in paradise and tell him Moonrise, here in the garden. At moonrise? Please. I saw your face, and I ascended out of the common place into the Stage with Mel and Mike, that was Stranger in Paradise from Musical of the Week, Kismet. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited to hear all about Kismet, if I'm being honest. Mike's talked about despising this musical for a long time, and I'm probably feeling a sense of schadenfreude that Mike picked it this week to torture us with. Well, I, I think I can talk about it uh, with a bit more um, clarity than perhaps you could give it, Mel, because you don't know it. No, I don't know it at Sorry. all. I kind of had to I'll be g- you. I'll give you the backstory on why I feel the way I do about it. it okay, is because I was in a really crappy production of it, and <laughs> no it. disrespect to my hometown of Potaruru, but I was a teenager. <laughs> what was I seventeen? I think yeah. it was my very first musical production, oh, and was I, it? and I went along to be part of the chorus. Didn't really understand what what the show was. Uh, didn't know what I was getting myself into. 
and it was my first thing uh, apart from school and apart from doing some repertory kind of sure, things sure. this was my first musical that I was involved in this is like pre going to drama school yeah oh a long way before that yeah, and I yeah. and, uh, wasn't sure if I could sing um, didn't know who I was going to be mixing with I got launched into this thing given bit parts to do being a beggar being um, a eunuch which yeah, I didn't right. really feel qualified to do <laughs> Had to shave all my body hair and do all that sort of stuff, and uh, I had a bit of physique in the time, so I was, you know, palace guard with the scimitar and all that sort of stuff. Sure, sure. From that aspect, you know, all the stuff I learned doing it, I'm grateful because I got to do stuff that I, in a rush, that I probably wouldn't have normally had had the chance to be exposed to. So, okay. I I learned a lot from doing it, mm. but it was a really crappy production. It Is was, it a good musical? To me, no, and I've tried to be dispassionate about that and to be as objective as I can be in terms of looking at the musical itself. And when I give you some of the detail of the background of the of the whole thing, you'll understand that it actually got more attention than it really deserved at the time that it came out back in the in the in the fifties. And I, I sort right. of feel um, I'm not really doing it a disservice because I'm trying to be as honest as I can about yeah, the yeah. nature of the show. It had some songs out of it that a lot of people will know. Yeah, right. And we are featuring some of that today in our selected um, tracks that we're playing. But honestly, as a show, it doesn't stand up well because it's launched on a bunch of stereotypes and it's launched on a on a really sort of tenuous storyline that doesn't really have a lot of depth to it. And our crappy production was crappy for a lot of reasons, not the least of which was that the director who just miscast it and he um, didn't put a lot of attention to the detail that should have been done at the time. He was a visiting director from out of town. And I came perilously close, I think, to learning that musical theatre would not be a good thing for me. Right. So uh, I I sort of backed away from it thinking, woo, I don't know if I want to do something like that again. Mm. Fortunately, got involved in the next production and, and had that all wiped away a little bit but every time I hear the name of Kismet as a show <laughs> that makes me go <laughs> I wish everyone could see the face you just so made that's great <laughs> <laughs> that is all I want to say at the moment about that because I've got so much I can tell you about the show itself later that, okay. will, that will justify my stance as to why I think it's a crappy show that nobody should be doing anymore these days <laughs> Okay, well, before I drag you into telling us everything you know about Kismet, first, like I mentioned, the Lion King at Sp- I saw the Lion King at Spark Arena, which I personally feel is far too big a venue for live theatre. What are your thoughts on venue sizes? Yeah, like I said at the outset, you know, I think we may sound like we're putting a dollar each way on this, but mm. I think it comes down to what you're putting on and whether it's a good fit for the space. There are things like my modest little production of duets, which I did in Cambridge in a small venue with the capacity of, I think, around about 60 at a pinch, mm-hmm. that that really worked for. If I tried to do something like that in a venue the size of what Founders was, yeah, 1,200-seat theatre, what a waste of space that would be. Yeah. And I have seen some, like you, I've seen some big productions in big venues and thought, wow, that was spectacular. Great to sit back a little bit and get the full effect of the big stage event Mm. and all that sort of stuff. I've also seen plays, you know, that should have been more intimate done in in theatres that are too big. Mm. I've seen musicals done in spaces that are too small. Yeah. So I think it's horses for courses, and I, and I understand and totally accept that um, production companies, whether they're community production companies or professional, don't always have the luxury it, of choice. Yeah, you don't have that. You don't have that often, actually. Yeah. Um, but you should be making choices of your production and, and, and scaling it to fit the venue. Agreed completely. 
So I think that's probably the the long way of saying a, a very short answer, which is um, make your production fit the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I guess to be fair to the Lion King, you know, they've got these massive big poles with strings and birds that they're flying around, so the birds are flying them around. You need the space. You need the space. Yeah. You know, you've got these massive animal puppets. You've got elephants walking down the aisles, literally the size of an elephant. You literally need that space. A few years ago, I went and saw Michael Hurst performing uh, pretty much a one-man show of Amadeus he wasn't it wasn't a one man show it was a full production right that was the, at the Waterfront Theatre Auckland Theatre Company's Waterfront Theatre beautiful venue very big stage yeah and it, I think it holds around about six, 700 people or something yeah mm-hmm. yeah and for some strange reason it actually worked and it felt almost intimate mm. I think that was probably stretching the limits of, of, of a play in a large venue though yeah I've seen a play I've actually seen a few plays in that venue yeah it does depend on the play, doesn't it? Yeah. So on one hand, we can make these wonderful claims of theatre's ability to create the unique, intimate, fragile atmosphere between the performer and the audience within we, a touching we distance. We often go back to that. Yeah, which, and because we particularly enjoy that as an experience ourselves. Yeah. Um, and But like you said, horses for courses... On the other hand, theatre can hold a he- its head up high, point to record-breaking box office receipts, even in a recession or COVID, and point out that thousands of people a night pack out massive venues because they're still hungry to see the real thing and live. Tr- there is some truth in that. You know, um, Chicago's case in point, over 6,500 people went to see Chicago over, yeah. the, over the course of the season, which is pretty cool. You could call it a bit of a false binary, though, because we're talking about polar opposites here. Yeah. A small, intimate theatre of, you know, anything from 20 60. to 20 to 60 or 80 yeah. people, up to 100 perhaps, your class is being intimate, and you've got your your major... Um, your Spark Arena of 5,000. Arena venues, yeah, which, yeah. which, which 5,000 people coming to see a musical just blows me away. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, even, in fact, going to see something at um, Claudelands. Yeah, to me as a large venue, but I remember also uh, founders being twelve hundred seat theatre, going and seeing Jesus Christ Superstar and other big shows there. It actually worked okay. So we we've got those two extremes, if you like, the big big venues, the small venues. In reality, it's not that binary. We've got so much else going on in between. Yeah. You know, you have one hundred, two hundred, four hundred seat theatres, all of which have their place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what's interesting is the level of hostility that seems to exist sometimes between those two camps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll, get, you'll get the bigger venues saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you don't, you're oh. not serious, theater, you're not like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it seems to be a battle between intimacy and enormity, if you like, uh, between something that's a bit more fragile and something that's a bit more robust, or maybe between, <laughs> if you like, profit, as opposed to you know something with some poignancy. Yeah, and it's probably important to uh, say that these qualities, well, none of them, are fundamentally good or bad per se. Like the problem is that while both of you know the big venue and the small venue, they're both called theatre. Of course, there's a sense that one or the other will eventually emerge as being the real theatre, and the other will be revealed to be the fraud, and that's how the narrative sort of always goes. Yeah, it seems to, doesn't it? Yeah, the question of how success and importance are judged, uh, I guess, is always going to continue. Mm. It's inevitable in an age when the internet has made nearly everything pretty much more accessible and you can see almost anything you want on yeah. a small screen. The question is, on, on one hand, how do we justify deeming something that only a maximum of 300 people can attend as being vital? And on the other hand, 
if it is vital, how do we justify not saying that it is? Yeah, yeah. And as much as small-time theatre makers might not want to acknowledge things like an arena tour of The Lion King as real theatre... It actually is. Yeah, it actually is. Theatre is defined as a collaborative form of performing art that uses live performers, usually actors, to present the experience of a real or imagined event before a live audience in a specific place, often stage. The performers may communicate this experience to the audience through combinations of gesture, speech, song, music and dance. Elements of art such as painted scenery and stagecraft such as lighting are used to enhance the physicality presence and immediacy of the experience. The specific place of the performance is also named by that word, theatre. Thanks Wikipedia for that definition. Actually in the definition of theatre as an art or a building, it is not stipulated that theatre is defined by a maximum audience size. Exactly. Theatre can be in your front room. L- yeah, literally whatever you want. <laughs> Meaning it really comes down to either personal preference or bucks, dollars mm-hmm. yep. as, a, as a creator, and or uh, as an audience member, actually, what you can afford to go and do. Yeah, that's right. And often these big, big arena tours come with a price tag. Oh, don't they? Yeah. You know, and like, you talk about going to see something in Broadway. Yeah. If you try to book for anything on, on, in the major theatres in Broadway, you're talking hundreds of dollars per ticket. Hundreds. You know, yeah. tickets in their prime to Hamilton, the musical, and on Broadway where even seats up in the gods were 200 bucks. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, it is about the buck, really. I personally prefer a smaller venue. That said, like I mentioned earlier, I've had profound theatre experiences in large venues with shows like War Horse mm. um, and The Lion King even to some extent. Um, but you've performed in a huge range of venue sizes. Like as a performer and an artist what? Oh, that's a big question. Because uh, you've performed in big ones and little ones. and Yeah, it demands different things of you. Mm. But there's something really neat about being in a small venue where you have the audience almost literally on top of you. Mm. You could almost reach out and touch the front row. You draw them in so much more easily into things like dramas. Yeah. And if you've got touching moments, they can be much more subtle. Mm. A big venue demands bigger performances yeah it's and almost a different art a different art yeah it's like saying you know do you do you prefer to do uh, you know two-handed dramas or um <laughs> 60 person musicals yeah totally different skill set and each one has its own uh adrenaline th- rush and all that sort of stuff too so oh gosh i sound like i'm sitting on the fence <laughs> don't i <laughs> no, unusual I, I do love them both yeah 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 uh, well, but that's I, good you're allowed to it's enormously satisfying as a performer to have that moment of intimacy with an audience mm. when, when you can just by a small gesture or a facial expression or something you say in a very much more refined way or, or a more delicate way is actually picked up by more of the audience that way. And I'm thinking of, of, of doing dramas more than comedies. Yeah, when, and when you're right that. there, like, I think that's potentially a big part of it that you've mentioned about being a bit more subtle. You know, like when you're sitting in the third row and, and that's only three metres away from the actors. Yeah. You know, that's real close. You don't have to do that big... Well, it's not cheesy, but that big acting. Um, yeah, I get it. I get it. So you're on the fence. We're both <laughs> on the fence. <laughs> on the reverse side of seeing The Lion King with 5,000 other people, I feel like I've said that so many times today, um, I've been reading about a British collective, Insane Root, who have staged Macbeth literally in the infamous Redcliffe Caves. Oh. <laughs> yep, like literally in the caves. And their latest production, Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, was staged in the vault, a very small vault, below Bristol's Clifton Suspension Bridge for a nightly audience of 12. Wow. Right? 
Yeah. How cool is that? It's very cool, although I find when you get down to numbers like that, um, audiences can be a little bit self-conscious about how they react. There's something about, there's a tipping point of around about 25 or 30, I think, where when you've got that sort of number. You can hide. Yeah, you can laugh or or be more demonstrative as an audience without sort of standing out so much. Yeah, yeah, that's probably good You've got to be really good to keep the focus of 12 people for that that amount of time. I like it. (laughs) Let us set the stage. So you knock on the red door. A bell rings, a door is opened, and you're on your way to the underworld. I'm talking about the staging of Orpheus and Eurydice that Mel was just talking about. The audience of 12 follow in single file down a wet path until you come to a metal ladder. And one by one, you go down that ladder. Then you pass into a damp, dark space, press a coin into the palm of a cast member, and bend almost double to walk four steps and come out into a chamber under the bridge. The walls are mottled with mould, fronds grow from the roof, water drips, it's cold as hell, and that's exactly how Insane Root wants you to feel as the show begins. That's really taking you into a, a physical experience watching theatre, isn't it? They're bringing you to the underworld. That's exactly what they're doing. I guess it's quite site-specific theatre, isn't it? But does it matter that the venue is doing most of the work, or that the thrill is mostly in the sense of being in that illicit space? I think it's a combination, isn't it, really? Or that's what they're hoping for. Yeah. How do they run that for an audience of 12 per performance? They're obviously not doing this for nothing. So oh, sure, yeah. How do they pay for it? Funded as a project. Yeah, probably. I don't know, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, it probably doesn't matter if, if the venue is doing all that work for you. If you know what you're signing up for as mm. an audience member, you know, you know you're going to do that and you're going to go and see that uh, and you know that's part of the deal. So in seeing an insane root show, you, you just... You you, you, know. you take that on board when you when you get your tickets. Yeah, yeah. I would call putting Orpheus and Eurydice Underground uh, a particularly clever move, actually, for bringing the site and the content together in, in one experience like that. I agree. And then on the path back up to the bridge after the show, who could resist looking back just like Orpheus would have and mm. thinking, well, that was there. And you're, yeah. Yeah. And you're kind of, it's more of an experience. I would just add that there has to be a reason why the show is taking place in that space, in yeah, that particular space. Don't do space. it arbitrarily. Yeah, that's right. Titus yeah. Andronicus in a car park, <laughs> fine, but there has to be a good reason. And it's and not just because it's cheaper than hiring a theatre and because there's an appetite for watching theatre outside traditional spaces. You know, there has to be a good creative reason. Although sometimes, you know, necessity can be the mother of invention. Well, isn't that the truth? I've been there. Marcina 
Bobbles, bangles and beads from our musical of the week, Kismet. Probably, I would guess, one of the best-known songs from the show. I don't know any Stranger of in Paradise. Yeah. You're backstage with Mel and Mike, and we're about to voyage into, for Mel, mm-hmm. territory. <laughs> if you believe Mike, Kismet is one of the worst musicals of all time, yeah. uh, and a journey from which you may never return. Oh, Mel, once you've seen it, you can you just can't unsee it, actually. It'll be burned into your retinas forever. Why is it so bad? Ah, uh, well... Like I said, my personal experience colours everything with this, but yeah. it is just a bit cheesy. <laughs> when you look at it, if you, if you when you analyse the story, which I'll give you in a moment, it is hokey. Uh, having said that, there is actually some really good music, but it's pretty sporadic. The, the entire score is not good. Sure. Parts of it are. Right. But somebody's going to fight me on this, I'm sure. And uh, and I don't know if there's anybody alive now that was still part of the Batoru Theatre Plus production back in <laughs> 1970, whatever it was, who may say, oh, my, no, that was my best show ever. <laughs> I hope there but is. I'll fight you on that too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, without any further ado, let's just release the hounds. Okay. Kismet is set in fictional Baghdad at the times of the Arabian Nights, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's actually a musical adapted by Charles Lederer and Luther Davis from a 1911 play of the same name by Edward Knobloch with lyrics and music. I know, great names. <laughs> music, <laughs> music and uh, lyrics adapted as well as some original music by Robert Wright and George Forrest. The music was mostly adapted from several pieces that were composed originally by Alexander Borodin. The story concerns uh, a wily poet who talks his way out of troubled civil times. Meanwhile, his beautiful daughter meets and falls in love with a young caliph. Um, I'll give you a bit more on the plot a bit later, but it's kind of like, you know, uh, the cheeky underdog that manages to outwit everybody. And Is it like Aladdin-esque? Kind of. Okay. That's what I mean, you know, uh, Arabian Nights kind of stories. Yeah, anyway, okay. It was first produced in uh, 1953 on Broadway and won three Tony Awards in the following really? year, 54. Okay. Best Musical, Best Leading Actor in a Musical and Best Conductor and Musical Director. It was also successful in London's West End and has been given several revivals, which I'll get to soon. Uh, 1955 film version was also produced by MGM and I'll have a bit more about that later too. All right. In the style of the Arabian Nights of old, okay, it's a wee bit complicated. Um, an impoverished poet is abducted and uh, through various events that happen at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. He's taken to the desert tent of a guy called Jawan, who's an elderly thief, having been mistaken for the man who cursed Jawan 15 years ago. Bit of argy-bargy goes on there. The poet, um, living up to the um, mistaken identity, says he'll lift the curse for 100 pieces of gold. And, you know, they'll, they'll enter into this agreement. Jawan then decides that he will go back to Baghdad to look for his long-lost son. In Baghdad, the poet's daughter, Marcina, meets and falls in love with a young caliph who has been travelling incognito, and they arrange to meet again later that night. The poet's arrested when he starts spending his hundred gold pieces because the purse carries the insignia of a wealthy family that it was robbed from. At the wazir's court, he defends himself against the charge of robbery but also curses the wazir. Jawan, who's brought him before the wazir on another charge, angrily confirms the poet's story and then notices a familiar amulet around the wazir's neck. Is this his long-lost son? Of course it is. (laughs) 
The caliph announces he plans to take a bride that night, which is upsetting to the wazir, who has a badly needed loan, riding on persuading the caliph to marry a princess from um, princess of Ababu, I think it is. The wazir, fearing that the poet's curse has something to do with it, offers to make the poet an emir. This is getting complicated, and I won't go through the rest of it. <laughs> There's lots of that sort of stuff going on. It takes place nominally over a 24-hour period, but there's so much going on here. Yeah. People trying to pull the wool over other people's lives, wazirs and emirs and caliphs and... A bit farcical. Is it comparable to a funny thing happening? Yeah, there's some elements of that. You know, I kept thinking that when I was reading the the plot, I thought this sounds so much like something that you would read as a plot line for a funny thing happening on the way to the forum. Yeah. The slave trying to outwit everybody else and get the best deal possible. Yeah, and the prostitutes coming along to complicate things and and the rival families. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of weird (laughs) anyway um, everybody lives happily ever after at the end and as I said it all happens in the course of a day Um, okay it premiered in Los Angeles actually and then moved to San Francisco in the summer and autumn of 53 and then moved to Broadway in December of 53 playing at the Ziegfeld Theatre uh, the director was Albert Murray with uh, choreography by Jack Cole and a very sumptuous setting and costumes by Lemuel Ayers. There was a lot of emphasis on the visual imagery and everything with it because, like I said, you know, they were all about Arabian Nights and the mystery of Baghdad and all that sort of thing. But I was talking about cultural stereotypes a little while ago. This is where sure. it becomes a little bit kind of icky to me. Oh, which is very reminiscent of yeah, um, Aladdin and that sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, which I'm not a great fan of. The original cast included Alfred Drake as the poet, Doretta Morrow as his daughter, Marcina, Richard Kiley as the young caliph of Baghdad. You might have seen his name associated with musical theatre from way back. Henry Calvin as the wazir and Joan Dina as La Lume, the vampy wife of the evil wazir. And interestingly, the bodybuilder Steve Reeves plays the wizard's guard. It's a mute role. And uh, <laughs> where have you heard Steve Reeves' name before? I don't know. Let me show you a rhyme. Maybe play you a sign. You look like you're both pretty groovy. Oh, if you want something that. visual... That's not too abysmal. It was very well planned. We could take it an old Steve Reeves movie. (sighs) If you wonder where Steve Reeves reference comes from, that's it. (laughs) It was a bodybuilder who made some what they used to call the uh, Sandals and Swords movies, uh, made in Italy about Hercules and things like that. Sure, right. uh, The early versions of what became Spaghetti Westerns. Right, so he, he was, was like a pretty ordinary actor, but he had pre this. Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. Anyway, I just thought you'd enjoy that. Yeah, I did. The show opened on Broadway in the midst of a newspaper strike, and we were talking about the uh, impact of reviewers and things in our last show. Yeah. Since the newspaper reviews were unavailable, the producers used TV advertising to promote the show. Right. And it caught popular attention. Ran for a very successful 583 performances, so not bad. The strike may have ultimately assisted the popularity of this show, though, because the reviews, when they arrived a few weeks later, after the opening, were not all favourable. Right, right. And this is where I start coming from my hobby horse on this as well. Sure. The critic of Time magazine, punning on the name of the composer Borodin, disparaged the score as a load of Borodin. (laughs) Walter Kerr wrote that it's the sort of show that would sell its soul for a joke, and the joke should be better at the price. Uh, William Hawkins, however, wrote that it was a noisy, spectacular and vigorous show. It is melodic and gay. 
And okay. Blumen Vlastnik noted that it was the score that made the show successful as the songs Stranger in Paradise, Baubles, Bangles and Beads were huge hits on radio, TV and on record. Kismet was more successful in London's West End. It enjoyed 648 performances there at the Stoll Theatre starting in April of 55. The London production opened with the three stars of the Broadway cast, Drake, Morrow and Dina. They were subsequently replaced by Tudor Evans, Elizabeth Lana and Sheila Bradley. The first Australian production opened at the Princess Theatre Melbourne in November 1955, featuring Hayes Gordon, directed by American Barry Frederick. It played over a year in Melbourne and Sydney. Really? Yeah. Okay. The musical was uh, revived at Lincoln Center's New York State Theatre starting in June of 1965 for 39 performances. Doesn't seem like much. Starring Drake, once again, Lee Venora, Anne Jeffries, and Henry Calvin, who came back from the original cast too. Mm. The New York City Opera presented the musical in October of 1985 with direction by Frank Corsaro. In 1994, BBC Radio 2 broadcast a complete production starring Ethan Freeman as Hodge, Julia McGannis, uh, I think, as Laloom, Stephen Hill as the Caliph, Katrina Murphy as Marcina, Frank Middlemas as Omar Khayyam, and David Adler as the Wazir, with the BBC Concert Orchestra, conducted by Kenneth Ulwin. So much detail. The production was rebroadcast in August of 2016. Oh, okay. This is an interesting part here that I didn't know about. Jettisoning the lush oriental context and physical production of the original, a restaging retitled as Timbuktu opened at Mark Hellinger Theatre on March the 1st, 1978, ran for 243 performances. This version, with a new book by Luther Davis, who wrote the original book, mm. set the story in Africa with minimalist settings and an all-black cast. Plot emphasis was shifted with increased emphasis given to Laloum who was the vampish wife of the wazir renamed Shalim Laloum and it was played by Eartha Kitt opposite William Marshall and Melba Moore two new songs were written for that production and it was quite successful the New York City Centre Encores series presented a stage concert in February of 2006 and then there was a revival in 2007 by the English National Opera and the London Coliseum and starred West End musical veteran Michael Ball with Faith Price and Elfie Bow. The only question in my mind is why did they revive it? That's what I keep coming back to in my mind as you keep talking about But you'll notice that they didn't have long seasons. Yeah. It's not the kind of show that gets revived and everybody goes, oh my God, you have to go and see Kismet. It was kind of... Yeah. <laughs> oh, there. Okay. okay now yeah. we get, let's get to the movie. In 1955, it's pretty much true to the stage show. Qualifies as a musical comedy film. It was directed by Vincent Minnelli and produced by Arthur Freed. It was filmed in Cinemascope in Eastman Colour and released by Metro and Golden Mayor. It's actually the fourth movie version of Kismet believe it or not. The fourth? Yep. In the, the first 50s. one. Yeah. The first one was released in 1920, the second in 1930 by Warner Brothers, and the third, starring Ronald Coleman and Marlena Dietrich, was uh, released by MGM in 1944. The difference is that the 1955 film was based on the musical stage show. The others were based on the original 1911 play by Edward Knobloch. Sure. Remember Knobloch? Knobloch. Yeah. How can uh, I forget? The musical movie starred Howard Keel, Anne Blythe, Dolores Grace, Sebastian Cabot, and Jack Elam, among others. It wasn't the spectacular cess the producers obviously thought it was going to be. <laughs> spectacular, yes, in the sense that it was flashy, opulent, pretty gaudy, sure. colourful, but it just lacked everything else. One reviewer said it was Minnelli's weakest musical with few redeeming features, which might be a bit harsh. Um, others used terms like lacklustre and uninspiring. Generally, Ooh. apart from a couple of the songs getting some radio airplay, there wasn't a lot of substance to it. And according to MGM Records, the film earned 
a grand total of $1.2 million in the US and Canada, which even in 1955 was not huge. It only earned $610,000 everywhere else. Sure. Resulting in a loss of two and a quarter million dollars. And in 1955, that kind of loss was very significant. Yeah, yeah, eek. So that's the movie. Okay. Based on a musical that, to my mind, is pretty awful. Why does it keep coming back up? Uh, I don't think it's going to be for terribly much longer. Because it's the music. If it's a I bit mean, racist, you, you then listen to the tracks won't. that we've chosen today. They come from a 1991 studio recording which brought together Samuel Ramey as Hodge who's the poet, you know, the key mm. character in the whole thing, the teller of the stories. Ruth Ann Swenson as Marcina, his daughter, Jerry Hadley as the caliph who falls in love with her, Julia McGannis as the sultry Laloom, and Dom DeLuise as the wicked wazir, and Mandy Patinkin as uh, the marriage arranger, and he sang that uh, opening song that we played. Um, the backing came from the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Paul Gimignani, and to my mind, it's one of the best renditions of the music from the show. But you can tell when you listen to the whole thing, you can tell there's so many of the songs are kind of like, you know, we're going to start with this massive great chord and then go on with right. vaguely Eastern sounding music. Yeah, right. And it's, it lacks substance. It's just got no real redeeming features at all from my point of view. And you want to know what the terms are? A caliph is a chief Muslim civil and religious leader often regarded as a successor to Muhammad. Oh, okay. A wazir is a high-ranking political advisor or political minister. I've been wondering this. And an emir is a military commander or slash general. Right. And I suppose this stuff is made clear to you when you watch the show. No, not necessarily. Oh, uh, okay. They talk about the caliph and the wazir and everything. And they don't explain what that means. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Love that. And now I am purged. I, uh, <laughs> Good. Finally, that's all there was to say about Kismet, and I'll never bring it up again. Uh, I'm willing to put money that I will absolutely hear you reference Kismet again at least once in my life. Only if I'm making a, a, a poor comparison with something. <laughs> um, I admit that I am not immediately hooked by the tracks, but I do have to say I'm morbidly curious as to how bad it could possibly be live on stage. Well, I'm sure one day you may get the chance to find out, and when you do, I want to hear that review. <laughs> I, I won't come with you to see it. Forgive me. <laughs> you sure? But I will be uh, waiting here to get the debrief when it happens. Consider this your last reminder for the day to please get in touch with Creative Waikato if you or your arts project could use their assistance. Uh, they have some funding open at the moment, some funding opportunities open at the moment, I think, till the end of July. And don't forget to catch Backstage wherever you get your podcasts. Backstage is available through iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, AccessMedia.nz and a bunch of others. Head on over to Instagram and find Backstage Podcast NZ, where I will be sharing and have been sharing all of our episodes plus Musical of the Week on our Instagram story. I have been Mel, he has been Mike and you've been Backstage once again. Stay classy, theatre nerds. And for the last time ever, I'm going to play a track from... <laughs> Kismet to close on, as I mentioned, it's called Was I Wazir, featuring Dom DeLuise, fantastic comedian actor, slash whatever. I didn't know he could sing, actually, but uh, he does a great job on this. See ya! Imagine the Wazir of police with a wizard in his employ, power within power. Now no end is too high and no means too low. How subtly I shall change the face of Baghdad. Subtlety, aha, always subtlety. Anyone can be violent and crude, ah, but subtlety has put me here where I am. <laughs> We caught the 700 men 
and hung them in their prison pen, who said, suspend them by their fuzz. Was I, was here, I was. When the keeper of the royal zoo was short a cockatoo or two, who sealed him in a pot of glue, was I, was here, I was. Yes. They always seem to remember when I begin to dismember them arm by arm and ear by ear and joint <laughs> by joint. When the court musician lost his grasp and let his lute begin to rasp, who had him bitten by an asp, was I, was here. Was he? Was he? Was I? Was he? Was he? Was he? I was! <laughs> it was me! <laughs> oh, the time we caught the man who said I wasn't nice! Joy, oh joy! Oh. I confiscated his mother and then did something or other involving her, dissolving in a vat <laughs> of lime. <laughs> when? At last, in manner neat and deft, I've hacked and hatcheted and cleft until no one but me is left. I want it clear. He wants it clear. I was, was here. And this was here. In every single charming and bizarre thing he does. Was I, was here. I For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.